Last week in our study of Ephesians, we saw that diversity shouldn't divide the church. But sadly, I'm sure we all know that sometimes it does. And so this week's text will explain what to do about this. We're in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17. If you need a Bible, you can grab one just outside there. And if you're in the church Bible, it's on page 919. We are so different, and we have so many different interests. Because of that, we are bound to hurt one another to sin against one another, and to turn towards self-protection. I don't set out to be a selfish person, but when nobody looks out for what matters the most to me, I start thinking that I have to work harder to start looking out for myself. And this leads me to reinforce behaviors that are increasingly self-serving And therefore, divisive. And therefore, I become less and less eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4 commands us up in verse 3. So to give you some examples, a noble desire to guard time with my family can very easily morph into bitter or slanderous words about those whom I perceive to be threats to my family time. Or, my chronic sleep disorder can easily fuel anger toward those who don't seem to understand or appreciate what it is like to live like this. So our our interests can reinforce self-interest, which can reinforce divisive behaviors. What are we to do when such divisive behaviors, such as bitter words or sinful anger, find a home among the people of God? How do we walk in all this unity stuff that this letter has been discussing all along? In our text this morning... The author gives us a model for understanding how to change our divisive behaviors so that we might maintain God's peace. And the battle, I'll give it away up front, the battle is waged primarily in the mind, in the, in the inside. We must first reject the futility of the sort of thinking found among unbelievers. This is the sort of thinking we were all once subject to. And as we reject that, we must then adopt the sort of thinking modeled for us by the Lord Jesus. Because when we change in the inside, then we are positioned to see change in what happens on the outside. That's where we're heading in this sermon today. The essence of the model presented here is, point number one in your outline... To move beyond futility in your thinking. So the author here first talks about what not to do, and then he contrasts it with what we ought to do. Let me read verses 17 through 24. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he covers two things here, what not to do and what to do. First, in verses 17 to 19, he talks about what not to do. In verse 17, he testifies to them in the Lord, bringing the the, the weight of his authority as a duly authorized representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his overarching command here is, verse 17, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, In the futility of their minds. So remember the word Gentiles just means non-Jews. And he's already talked a lot in this letter about how Gentiles are now made a part of God's people. So he's actually shifting the way he uses that label now. He's using Gentiles as a general label for non-believers. Those who are on the outside of the covenants of promise. Alienated from the life of God. And his, so his overarching command is no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And you know what? Paul did not even have to visit Penn State University to know how this works. But we can go and, and see it ourselves if we want. You see, in verse 18, he traces a process. And let me start at the end of it, at the end of the verse, and work backwards. Because that's logically how it works. It starts with hardness of heart at the end of the verse. All of this is due to their hardness of heart. That's where people know, they already know what they want, and they just need to find ways to justify it. That's hardness of heart. And that produces, working backwards, ignorance, where they cannot even recognize the truth. And that ignorance, working backwards further in verse 18, alienates them from the life that they could have in God. And such alienation, moving backwards to the beginning of the verse, darkens their understanding. Which is why he talked about the futility of their minds in verse 17. Their understanding is darkened. That's the end result of all of this. You can go up to campus and watch this play out in the sciences where men and women begin with their heart desires to be autonomous creatures, 
the hardened hearts. We want to be autonomous creatures, independent of any divine authority who might tell us what to do or think. And that then makes, makes us ignorant of the indisputable facts that the creation must have a creator. And so therefore they are alienated from the life that could be theirs through worship of the creator and recognition of their honored place in his created order. And this then darkens their understanding so as to simply presume things like a history of random chance, the spontaneous and ridiculously improbable spontaneous origin of life, unpredictable mutation, and natural selection. Such things are rarely argued for. They're simply presumed as self-evident. So you can see it there. You can see the same process playing out in the athletic arenas. Where hardness of heart begins with the desire for fame and prestige that comes from being the best at something. And that makes us ignorant of a God who loves to use weakness to shame strength. And then so we become alienated from the life that could be ours through humble service and sacrifice for the good of others more than ourselves. And this then darkens our understanding so that we freak out or lose our sense of security when our team loses in overtime or fails to make the playoffs. And even when they win, how quickly do we grasp the futility of only having to start again from scratch just a few months later when a new season begins? But we still get so worked up about it. You can see the same process playing out in the Greek system or student nightlife where men and women begin with hardened hearts out of self-love and the aggressive desire for self Fulfillment. This makes them ignorant of the love of Christ for them, which fills all in all. So they are alienated from the freedom and the life of God that could be theirs as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this then darkens their understanding so that they participate in incredibly risky, alcoholic, and sexual behaviors, potentially giving up the very fulfillment they wish they could experience. See, verse 18 describes the process, and verse 19 describes where all of this futile thinking takes people. They become callous because you've shut your heart off from that which is truly life. And then you are giving yourself up to sensuality, Because what you can feel and taste and touch becomes your entire world. And then you become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Because when all you've got to live for is yourself and what you can see and feel and taste and touch, you've got to get more and more and more of whatever it is that you desire. And the author of Ephesians sees this all of this playing out all across the unbelieving world. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord of heaven and earth, this is your lot. What you are currently doing 
is futile. If you keep living for yourself and putting yourself first, that is precisely the opposite of what God wishes for the world. Please don't deny yourself the life that is available to you through knowing Jesus Christ, finding your place as a person he created, and living out your created purpose by serving him and others. And the author of this letter testifies to those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 17 that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So this sort of futile thinking that is all about myself and my desires must no longer characterize the people of God. Such thinking is typically at the heart of divisions within the church of Christ. And there is a way to overcome it. There is a way to change divisive behaviors in order to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's told us what not to do. Don't walk like the Gentiles. So now he moves on to how to change it. Here's what to do in verses 20 through 24. Because he says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, this sort of thinking no longer characterizes you. When you heard about Jesus Christ, when you learned him and you put your faith in him, you learned all about how you could not keep God's law and you could not make God happy and you needed help from outside yourself in order to find forgiveness and reconciliation and salvation and Jesus Christ provided that for you. So what is the truth that is in Jesus as he puts it in verse 21? He breaks it down into three steps marked by three infinitive verbs in verses 22 through 24. They're verbs that start with the little word to. Verse 22, to put off your old self. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 24, to put on the new self. This is the essence of what it is he wants us to do. Put off your old self, renew your mind, put on your new self. And I think the first and third steps are probably the most common sense steps of the batch. People often want to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. This is why the self-help genre of books, lectures, and videos is so widespread and lucrative these days. People want to acquire better habits. They want to find 30 days to the new you. But what's easy to miss, so easy to miss, is that crucial second step. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In fact, that's the 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 tactic to replace the futility of the Gentile mind. Up in verse 17. This renewal of the mind is what fosters eagerness to maintain unity, which he commanded up in verse 3. This is what the author's been trying to do from the beginning of the letter until now. He's been teaching us how to think about God himself 
in unity with himself. How to think about our relationship with God in unity with him. And he's taught us how to think about our the unity of the church. This is what Paul himself has said he is trying to bring to light for us after having received knowledge of the mystery of God's grace in chapter 3. So here is the model for change. Number one, stop doing what you are doing. Put off the old self. Turn away from your former manner of life. Set aside your selfish and deceitful desires. Stop doing what you are doing. Number two, get a new way of thinking. Get a new way of thinking. Turn aside from the futility of thinking like an unbeliever and get a new way of thinking about God, yourself, his people, and his call to unity. A new way of thinking that will actually motivate and equip you to do the right thing. So that then, number three, you can do something different. Do something different. In fact, you can do what God created you to do. He said you're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So when you do righteousness and holiness, that will make you like God. You will be like him. You can look to the Lord Jesus, see what he does, and then be like that. I hope this makes sense so far. Stop doing what you're doing, get a new way of thinking, and do something different. It's pretty straightforward. I hope that shouldn't be too controversial. But what does it look like to do this in real life? Diversity shouldn't divide the church, but sometimes it does. So what can we actually do about it? How do we stop doing what we're doing, change our thinking, and be like Jesus? How do we practice this model in specific areas when we wish to crucify specific divisive behaviors? The author spends the next paragraph giving us four case studies and then a concluding summary. He's mapped out for us this precise three-step process so we can see it and follow it. So let's take a look at how it plays out. Verses 25 through 32. Actually, I'm just going to start. I'm going to read 25 to 29. Case studies in renewing your mind. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The author here shows us how his model works by presenting four case studies, which will be followed by a concluding summary. We'll get to at the end. And if I had thought a little further ahead, I might have given you a table rather than an outline. In the bulletin here, just an empty table with the three steps across the top and the four case studies down the left side. So you could just fill in the boxes 
for how this plays out because Paul is that clear in this paragraph. He's going to show us how the three-step process works out in each of these four examples. First is the example of lies. Verse 25. This is that of a liar and an untrustworthy person. Lies are devastating to the unity of the church because when people tell lies, they lose the trust they might have with one another. The problem with lies is not only about the falsehood itself, though that is a problem and that violates the glory of God, but the problem in the church is with the broken relationships and mistrust caused by the lies. Lies are a divisive behavior. Lying is not only a sin against God, it's also a sin against the people of God. So remember the three parts of the model. There's an old Gentile-like behavior to put off. There is a new God-like behavior to put on. But the thing that makes it possible to put on that new behavior is a change in thinking. So that one's thinking is no longer selfish or futile. So look at the pieces here in verse 25. What is the liar supposed to put off? Easy. He says it straight straight out. Put away falsehood. Okay? Stop doing what you're doing. Stop telling lies. And what is the liar supposed to put on? Again, that's easy. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So here's what we're to do instead. Here's the different thing. Just tell the truth. But what is the change that must happen in the liar's thinking to make it possible? You see, it's not simply enough to grit your teeth and commit yourself to speaking things that are true. Something needs to be renewed in your mind to make you want to speak the truth. Do you see it at the end of the verse? For we are members of one another. You see, the liar thinks of himself or herself as the only person that matters. I must hide this thing from you because you might take it away from me. I must lead you into thinking of me a certain way even when I know it's not true because my dignity, my self-worth, my independence, and my desires are at stake. And so when any of those things are threatened, those things that I think about and value in the futility of my mind and my darkened understanding, when any of that is threatened, that which pours out of my hard heart, my darkened understanding, is lies, lies, and more lies. Lies become my food and my drink. Lies are so easy to tell because actually I've already persuaded myself that the lie is the truth. I'm really not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty great and important person. And I want to make sure you know it too. Therefore, I keep lying to get you to see me as I have chosen to see myself. But it is all about me. Me, me, me. That's right. But if I thought of the people in the church, I mean, that's wrong. Sorry, that's wrong. That's right, what I'm trying to say. If I thought of the people in the church 
as being members of Christ's body, which makes us members of one another, then lying is no longer an option. If I trick and deceive you into believing something that isn't true, I'm harming myself. I'm harming my own body. Because we're members of one another. And why would I do that? If I consider you and me as members of one another, then the truth will become more important than my feelings and my self-respect. So friends, please put away falsehood and put on the speaking of truth to your neighbor. Do this by changing your thinking so that you might recognize that we are all members of one another. Then you'll be more eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And when someone asks you how you're doing today, you won't have to lie to them with a quick, fine, how are you? And when someone asks you, if you know how the lamp got broken, you can take responsibility and just tell the truth. I'll move more quickly through the other case studies. I wanted to draw that out so you could see what Paul's doing here. And you can take time with one another to cover more of them in more detail if you want to draw this out. But let me move on to letter B, sinful anger. Verses 26 and 27. Notice that the text here does not tell us to not ever be angry. There is a time and a place for anger, particularly when righteousness and justice have been abandoned. We ought to be angry at genocide. We ought to be angry at the systematic murder of the unborn. We ought to be angry at the disfavored or prejudiced treatment of different kinds of people. Anyone who is not angered by such things has not spent enough time with the Lord for his anger to rub off at you. The text does not say put off anger. No, what is it we must put off in verse 26? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, I think he's saying put off sinful anger. Do not sin in your anger and don't let your anger just simmer without doing something to realistically deal with it. What must we put on? The command in verse 26, be angry. Don't just put on an indifferent attitude toward the world and its injustices. Instead, put on a righteous indignation toward sin, suffering, misery, and death. Now, what change in thinking must take place to make this possible? What's that second step in the process? I think it's in verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. You see, the futility of an unbeliever's thinking goes like this. It doesn't matter who or what I'm angry at, nor when I am angry. If someone doesn't like it, they can just leave me alone and they'd better not get in my way. But that is not acceptable to a believer in Jesus Christ. The, the renewed thinking after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness goes like this. If I'm not careful, my anger will give the devil an opportunity 
to divide the unity in our church. If I'm angry at the wrong person, or I'm angry at the wrong time, or I'm angry in the wrong way, people will fear me and they'll have to avoid me or work around me. Things will get touchy and we won't have much intimacy or love and the devil will take advantage of the situation to rip things wide open and break up the body of Christ. So the second case study shows us how to change behaviors of sinful anger. The third case study is that of theft in verse 28. Theft is a threat to unity because I can't be one body with you if I fear you're going to take whatever you want from me against my will. Theft is another significant breach of trust among God's people. Whether you steal property or time or energy or even people's attention, people will not want to be around you and the unity of the spirit is threatened. So what should we put off? Verse 28, no longer steal. So stop your theft. And what should we put on? You see, you can't just stop stealing. You need something else to replace it with. And so he says, rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So this is what you put on. In other words, get a job or ask someone what you can do to help them. Or stop complaining about your life or all the work you have to do. Give up some me time to serve the community. What must change, what, sorry, what change must take place in the thief's thinking for them to do this? And it's this. It's at the end of verse 28. The thinking must be that I don't work or labor or get a job in order to get more stuff for myself. I do those things in order to get more stuff to share with others. See verse 28, do all this so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And friends, this sort of thinking would radically transform the way we approach our careers and any volunteer work we do. The renewed mind of the Christian sees such things as labor and hard work and career and volunteerism. The the renewed mind of the Christian sees these things not for the sake of himself or herself, but for the sake of others, for the community. Once when I was in college, I was gently corrected on this point by an older gentleman. A child asked me once why I had a summer job. Why do you go to work at your job? And my answer to this child was, in order to make money. And this gentleman overheard the exchange, and he came over, and he patiently and wisely stated, unfortunately, no, that's incorrect. The Christian does not get a job in order to make money, though that is one of the benefits of a job. The Christian gets a job in order to glorify God and serve his people. The Christian does this to fulfill their created purpose by serving people. Do you think that way about your career? Now, please understand, there is nothing wrong with making money. I'm not saying you shouldn't make money or that you shouldn't try to make money. 
I'm only saying that is not the chief end of your labor. The church of Jesus Christ needs not only missionaries to preach the gospel around the world, but we also need hard workers who make piles and piles of money to support the work. But are you making the money for yourself or so that you can be a blessing to others? If such a change in thinking permeated the Christian church today, how much more progress might we make in maintaining unity? The fourth case study, verse 29, is that of rotten speech, rotten or corrupting talk. One of the chief expressions of the unity of the church is the way we speak toward and about one another. Speech has a surprising power inherent in it to either build up or tear apart. Either it raises up and beautifies or it rots and corrupts. So what are we to put off? Verse 29, corrupting speech. And what are we to put on? Speech that is good for building up as fits the occasion. And how must we change our thinking to make this possible? We must recognize the inherent power of our words to either give grace or to withhold it from others. Friends, your speech is not idle. Your words are not useless. Everything you say has a remarkable power to minister the grace of God to others. His grace comes to other people primarily through the words that people speak to them. That's why he says at the end of verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. You can be an agent of grace or you can be a barrier to grace. Your words are always doing one or the other of those two things. And we need to think that way. We need to understand that to motivate us to be agents of grace. That we may give grace to those who hear us. This fourth case study is, is so significant to Paul that it leads him right into a concluding summary. Verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, you see in verse 30, the Holy Spirit of God is not a philosophical concept or an intellectual idea. He is a person. And your words and your behaviors have the ability to either delight him or, in this case, grieve him. When you act in such a way that you threaten the Spirit's unity that he's seeking to build within the church of Jesus Christ, the very Spirit who is the seal and down payment on your inheritance, he suffers grief. Therefore, verse 31, we are to set aside a whole pile of things, all bitterness, wrath, anger, 
clamor, slander, and malice toward one another. All these things must be put off as part of the old man, the unbelieving way of life. And what are we to put on instead? Verse 32, kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Now, how on earth is that possible? When people hurt me, or they offend me, or they trample on my rights, or they fail to account for my interests, how can I possibly be kind and tender or forgiving toward them? This, too, must be driven by a serious change in our thinking. Because if I think of people as pawns to help me achieve my goals, or as threats to my happiness, that betrays my view of God. That God is also here to support my happiness and my goals. But for Christians, this is no longer the way we view God or others. I view God as a holy Father against whom I have rebelled, and apart from the Lord Jesus, I could have no relationship with him. And the last phrase of verse 32 represents the most seismic shift in the Christian's thinking that drives everything else. It is this shift that I am not only undeserving of God's grace, but I am ill-deserving. On my own, I don't just not deserve grace, I actually deserve hell and damnation. But God in Christ has forgiven me. And if he has done that for me, I can do no less for those who have sinned against me. The eternal debt I owe to God has been forgiven. Therefore, I must forgive the fewer and the smaller debts that might be owed to me. Here then is how we begin to put into practice All this teaching on unity we've received in this letter of Ephesians. To walk in unity, your behavior must change through a change of mind. Don't maintain futility in your thinking like unbelievers do. Instead, have the mind of Christ. See yourself first and foremost as a person who has been forgiven then you can walk in unity with other forgiven sinners as well by putting off the old man, renewing your mind, and putting on the new man that Jesus is making us all into. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for forgiving us in Christ that we might extend this same forgiveness to others. Though their debts are real, though the hurt really hurts, though the pain is there, Lord, help us to walk in unity. Help us not to think like unbelievers, but help us to think like you think, like you have called us to think. Shape us after your image in righteousness and holiness that we might change our divisive behaviors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.